and welcome to Canine Conservationist, where we're positively obsessed with conservation detection dogs. I'm your host, Kayla Fratt, and I am here with a really exciting um, attempt at a new type of episode. We are doing a panel episode. So this was inspired by James Davis's recent um, Conservation Canines episode, where he had a bunch of conservation detection dog handlers to ask each other questions in a panel format um, in an attempt not to completely rip him off. <laughs> I have invited on a combination of a couple conservation dog people, some conservationists, some animal behavior researchers all over the map. Um, and we're going to go ahead and ask each other some questions and have a really good time. So we're going to start out with Ken Ramirez. Um, Ken, do you want to introduce uh, yourself to us? Hi, sure. Uh, my name is Ken Ramirez. I am the uh, Executive VP and Chief Training Officer for Karen Pryor Clicker Training. I do a lot of conservation work as well. And Irene? Yes, my name is Dr. Irene Gomez. I'm an Assistant Professor of Wildlife Biology at the University of Montana. I run the Charismatic Mini Fauna Lab and am a conservation biologist. And Laura? My name is Laura Holder. I'm the Executive Director for Conservation Dogs Collective. Ursa? My name is Ursa Acri. I'm the behavior manager for the Colorado training team for Behavior Vets of Colorado, and I'm a certified dog behavior consultant. <laughs> and Kim? And um, my name is Kim Brophy, and I'm an applied ethologist and certified dog behavior consultant who owns the Dog Door Behavior Center in Asheville, North Carolina, working with clients and their dogs, and uh, more recently have launched an online educational platform to be training pros worldwide. And last but not least, Charles. Hi, everybody. Nice to be here with you. And thanks, Kayla, for organizing this. It's a pleasure to be here with so many great folks. Uh, my name is Charles Van Rees. I'm an interdisciplinary conservation biologist, conservation scientist, perhaps I should say, also an interpretive naturalist. So I'm a co-host and co-producer co, uh, on the Nature, Bi Nature Guys podcast, uh, also founder of the Gulo in Nature blog. Excellent. So as I said, we're, um, this is an interesting experiment in a new type of episode. And we've got a doc started where everyone has written down their questions. Kim, you are on the top of the doc. So you can you don't have to start with the first question you've got written down. But go ahead with one of your questions. Um, well, one of the things that I wanted to ask those of you who are working with conservation dogs is what kind of applications for conservation dogs? What kinds of projects are you guys working on that might surprise those of us who are not involved in that particular field? I'm going to let Laura go first because I talk way too much on this show. <laughs> it's um, That's a great question. Thank you, Kim, for asking that. Uh, it's hard for me to actually isolate out like what might surprise you guys. So um, I'm going to just brag a little bit about some of the projects I'm currently involved with from Conservation Dogs Collective. Um, the main one that I'm really excited about is the bumblebee nest detection work that we're doing. So we're training the dogs to find the colonies that are usually on the ground, but also a lot of times underground in rodent burrows and so on. So that's pretty fun. Uh, bumblebees, as I've learned throughout this project, are actually very gentle, lovely little creatures. Um, I used to be terrified of them as a small child, but I have learned since that they're really great. Kayla, do you want to answer on your side? Sure. Well, I think of maybe a, another project example. Yeah, I think similarly, it's hard to, it's hard to extrapolate out what may be surprising to people since we're steeped in it. But I know um, back, so the very first conservation dog project I did with Barley was in Yellowstone, finding zebra mussels. And maybe because we, you know, as part of that job, we're searching people's boats. So we have to talk to people. That was definitely the 
uh, target that I've worked on where I've gotten the most skepticism from the public. Um, I had several people be like, there's no way your dog can find a zebra mussel on my boat. Like I had one guy who was just sure that I was hiding hot dogs around to try to show off, <laughs> uh, to show off stuff with my dog. Um, and I think especially, you know, and we weren't, Barley was not yet trained on villagers at this point. Um, he actually still isn't, but um, those microscopic larvae, of zebra mussels, there have been studies shown that dogs can detect them. Um, and I think that is something that is really surprising. And, uh, and any of the other research that has been done with, I know Working Dogs for Conservation has done work finding elk scat that was infected with brucellosis as opposed to healthy elk scat. Anytime we're starting to look at the pathogen work, that's the stuff that I think is really impressive because of course a dog can find grizzly bear scat. I think most reasonable people kind of understand and expect that. But when we're looking at pathogens, people start getting really excited. I'll add one last little nugget in there. Um, when I first heard about conservation detection work, probably six, seven years ago, it was the whale scat detection dog that was doing this on the Pacific Ocean and he's yeah. on a boat. And I'm like, what is happening? Is this like a movie? Like, so that was pretty just mind blowing on multiple levels. I've been involved in a number of detection projects. The one that I'm involved in right now is in Zambia. Um, there's a real serious problem with uh, um, fear of a lot of the venomous snakes there, but there, there's a real desire to protect them. And so there's a problem with, with a lot of the, the locals who really want to kill every uh, black mamba, every puff adder, every spitting cobra they come right. across. And so we've begun doing... Um, detection work with a variety of dogs to help alert people to when the, the, they're coming across these snakes and, and guiding them away from the from these snakes. And that has really helped uh, relieve the desire to kill the snakes. And so that's been a really effective thing. The hard thing was really was not only did I want to help with this project, but I'm a very strong believer in positive reinforcement. And a lot of times when people train snake avoidance, they want to use a shock collar or some aversive technique like that. But what we did was we implemented an entirely positive reinforcement approach. We're only in the second year of the project right now, but we do have uh, 17 dogs uh, involved in this project, and it's going very, very well. And uh, I'll be making my next trip there, COVID permitting, uh, very soon. And I, so. I thought maybe you were going to say uh, the hard awesome. part is that I'm really afraid of snakes. <laughs> <laughs> oh well that that's that's another issue i was bitten by a rattlesnake when i was 11 years old and so i i i, I it took me a long time to get over that but fortunately because i've worked in the zoological community and i've worked in a number of uh of situations where i worked around snakes it gave me the opportunity to overcome that fear i still have a healthy respect for the yes. for the venomous snakes but yeah. uh, but i uh uh, I don't know. Laura, you are next up to ask a question. Okay, this is a big chewy one, I think. This is for everybody that's on the call with us here. Um, what are your top two or three professional ethics you feel are the most important in the work you do with animals, including the humans you work with? When from from the perspective of the organisms that you work with, especially if you're looking for live organisms, one thing that I do when I train wildlife biologists is say, is this absolutely ne necessary? Do we have to handle wildlife? Is there a, uh, a less invasive way uh, that we could collect this data? 
um, is the data that we're going to be collecting actually useful in addressing uh, the question that we're trying to answer? Um, and so I always encourage my students to use less invasive methods uh, when doing wildlife research. And I think the conservation detection dogs is a great example of being able to have high detection probability, especially for you know species um, that can be cryptic or hard to detect. Um, and so I think the conservation detection dog program uh, that Kayla runs and, and some people here is a great way to, you know, reduce the handling uh, of wildlife species. That's a great yeah. point. One of the other things that I think is really important is so often when you're working on a conservation project, you can get very tunnel vision and only be focused on the species that you're trying to do observations or do work with. And it's really critical, especially outside of the U.S., because the U.S. has quite a few laws that, that require environmental impact statements and things like that be done. But often other countries don't. And oftentimes the work that we're doing to try to save one species can often detrimentally impact many, many other species. And so I think we you really have to go into these projects with this very holistic view to understand what impacts you're having on a variety of other species. One thing I think about a lot, and I think this... Um, applies. So I come from the dog training field, not, not the conservation field, but I think it goes for both fields is um, we often can lose sight because we all are here because we care so much about animals, right? And we can also often lose sight of having compassion for the human side. Um, and it's talked about a lot more in dog training, but I think that a lot of trainers still miss uh, the compassion and giving the benefit of the doubt to the human side of the equation. And that goes for whether we're talking about working with companion animals in their homes and understanding how difficult it can be for the handlers to, um, or I'm sorry, for the guardians to, um, you know, deal with these behavior problems day in and day out. Or if we're talking about a conservation project where we're in it to protect the species that we're working with, but there's also a very real impact on the people that, you know, share the same ecosystem, the same environment. And so I think always keeping in mind that, you know, <laughs> humans are animals too. <laughs> and um, the, the way that they feel, whether, uh, you know, whether we agree with it or not is valid and that we need to keep that in mind. Um, we're not just trying to change the behavior of the animals, but we're trying to do so in a way that, that um, protects the welfare of the people that are involved as well. So I think looking at the welfare on both sides of the equation, the human and the non-human animal, um, is something that's really important, again, for pet dog training and for, you know, the conservation side. And I, I can jump off of that and also, Irene, what you said, too. I think, um, you know, I am in kind of an interesting position because I work directly with the clients, just like you do, Ursa, you know, as a dog behavior consultant. But bringing that applied ethology lens to it, I'm always looking at kind of, you know, those roots evolutionarily and then kind of in terms of thinking about dogs as part of the natural system and, of course, affected by all of the natural laws, um, you know, things like the concept of a niche, you know, and the, the what has happened for dogs 
now in the 21st century that are living uniquely and and new captive lifestyles, which for 10 to 40,000 years, they weren't living. We have really chronic welfare issues in the pet dog population that don't get talked about a lot. And we don't think of them in that systematic way that we do other species and all of those different connections and ripples and implications. Um, We, something as simple as dog training, which we, you know, kind of culturally accept and take uh, for granted that we should do with all pet dogs, we don't stop and think about fundamental truisms. You know, you talked about invasiveness, about like modifying behavior is invasive. It's very invasive, you know, and it's, it's actually quite powerful to be able to modify behavior through um, conditioning and, and the processes that we have now kind of mastered in the world of animal learning and training and behavior. Um, But we just kind of flippantly will apply those things for our own amusement sometimes, not with any ill will, but like, it's so commonplace just to modify ad nauseum. Um, you know, dog behavior uh, towards our wishes. And so Ursa, kind of going back to what you were saying, I think that welfare centricity as opposed to measuring by behavior change being the value that we're interested in in the dog behavior world practically, it should be more of a welfare centric conversation in my ideal world. And I think we all also often always have to ask the question of like, do we need, and kind of what Irene was saying, do we need to be doing it? Right. You know, who's benefiting? Right. It's, it's kind of like the whole course that I'm teaching. I mean, the, the, the bedrock of it is just saying before we start, how let's ask why. And then if, Mm -hmm. so first let's understand Mm -hmm. what we're looking at when we're looking at a behavior, where did it come from? Why is it happening more than just kind of the immediate antecedents, but what are those kind of universal or ultimate antecedents kind of through that ethology lens that we need to be mindful of. And then there's a whole lot of, should we, change that behavior? Mm -hmm. Should we meddle in that at all in the first place as opposed opposed to either even like how to change the behavior? So um, it's cool to see the industry finally evolving and accepting some of that content and conversation. Mm -hmm. Charles? Thinking of sort of the scale at which a lot of my science has operated lately, I think that the, the ethic that ties in most directly is what has been referred to as sort of the land ethic, right? A lot, of, a lot of my work right now has shifted to be increasingly policy relevant. And so a lot of I do has to do with protected areas or large scale restorations or sort of landscape scale phenomena and decisions being made, you know, by governments and, and what have you. So the things that I consider a lot have more to do with, well, how are we, how are we treating the land? How are these decisions affecting ecosystems and populations rather than individual organisms as much. Uh, I don't think that the principles are that different. You know, mm-hmm. I think I think Ursa put it very well, right? We're still thinking about this human and non-human worlds in certain ways. And I think the way that conservation science in general has been maturing um, long overdue, but finally doing it, I think, is, is engaging uh, in an acknowledgement and understanding of the fact that, yeah, you know, it's very easy for conservation to be very harmful to certain people, especially, you know, uh, marginalized group of people, uh, you know, there's a lot of issues with protected areas, excluding indigenous populations to areas and things like mm-hmm. that. So um, that ties in, I think, to an expansion of the land ethic as it was initially as, you know, initially proposed. I think beyond that now, we're, we're maturing to also understanding that a land ethic means talking about the people um, of and on that land as well. And for me, that's, that's an increasingly major one. I, I think that because my work now leads to, you know, recommendations for decision makers, oftentimes at very big scales, I'm always thinking, well, okay, who is this affecting and how, uh, and that who being humans and non-humans um, at that point, and, and really trying to consider those, those 
kind of broader scale, big chunk, you know, uh, processes. I have yeah. to jump in and, and say my, one of my favorite quotes by Aldo Leopold that wrote The Land Ethic that Charles had mentioned was, he, he writes, my, I'm going to probably paraphrase slightly, there's two things that interest me, the relationship of people to one another and the relationship to people to land. Um, and I think that hits the point that Charles was mentioning. Mm. Yeah. Beautiful. Oh, gosh, I love Elder Leopold. I was a, a Wisconsin native raised by a conservation biologist. So kind of it was it was forced <laughs> upon me at a young age, <laughs> grew into it. Um, yeah, I think my the one thing that I've been thinking about a lot lately is is curiosity and kind of approaching questions with genuine curiosity. That's part of this podcast. Um, and even yesterday in the break room at um, at work, there was a paper, um, a piece in the paper about some ranchers who have had their dogs and calves killed by the wolves that have recently come into Colorado from Wyoming. And the paper was, you know, very <laughs> uh, less pro-wolf than I tend to be as a person. And, um, you know, I think I, I have a knee-jerk reaction to approach these things in a like, well, the wolves were here first and they don't have any land left and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, I'm really working on as a person, as a trainer, as a conservationist, as a communicator, trying to scroll, you know, roll, roll it back and ask more questions and try to understand more of, you know, okay, what do we know about the behavior of these animals? What do we know about what preventative measures we haven't tried yet? What do we know about, you know, any pack dynamics with this particular group? What do we know about, you know, one of the immediate things I noticed in, like this article um, that I'm trying to instead approach with curiosity instead of judging is that they had 40 pound border collies living outdoors um, in an unfenced area and they were attacked by wolves. And, you know, as a trainer, the first thing I think of is management (laughs) and, you know, maybe the dogs should be somewhere more protected, but also obviously if the wolves are coming that close, anyway, I'm going down a tangent, but curiosity is something that, I'm, I'm not there yet and openness. I'm not there yet, but it's something I've been really working on with a lot of aspects of my professional and personal life. Well, I think, I think one of the things that helps with that, it goes back to what Ursa was saying originally is you do have to really, I can name dozens of conservation projects where the idea seemed sound, but the local people who lived in that area were never included in the process, were never asked about it, were never a participant in it, and consequently, they didn't support it. And, and, and we often come into someone's land or come into someone's country with these great ideas of protecting a specific species, but if we don't include the local people, if we don't include the local governments, if we don't include the people who live among those animals and get their buy-in, the project is destined to fail or only have maybe short-term success. And so I think it is, in my in my recent years, in the last 15 or 20 years that I've been doing this, I always focus on, not focus on, but make sure that we are paying attention to getting the local people involved, asking their opinions, getting their feedback, and adjusting the, the, the plan if it's going to affect those individuals. And I think it's critical that we involve them or else we're, we're not really looking at the whole picture. Yeah, absolutely. Um, if we're ready, I think it is Charles's turn to ask a question. And um, in the future, just because I, I realized we've never had this many guests on an episode, when you pop in to answer, just say, hey, this is Irim. Hey, this is Laura. Um, just so we know um, the listeners who can't see us know who's talking. 
All right, let's see. I, I'm going to draw picking between my nice questions here. I think uh, maybe maybe I'll start with a little bit of like an, an easy one for now. So this, I guess, would go to Laura and Kayla and I, I, pretty much anyone else who's doing who's actively doing um, conservation detection dog training, especially in collaboration with ecologists, you know, for uh, more ecologically oriented people listening. You know, what what are the big things you wish more ecologists knew about dogs, dog training and, and what you do, right? Because I, I think we're in a time now when these sort of collaborations are really proliferating on a large scale. And a lot more of you are running into lots of ecologists who think it would be really cool and maybe it has some great potential to, to contribute to their work. But um, maybe there are certain things that they don't know or they're not aware of or, or ways that they're framing the problems that are not amenable to your work. Um, yeah, what are your kind of key messages you would love some more of them to know, uh, myself included, by the way? Oh, gosh, I just recorded like three hours of podcast episodes on this question. <laughs> um, okay, so, so maybe yeah. just play them no. all right now. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just warp speed, go through it. I think, you know, the first thing that comes to mind for me is the level of professionalism needed in this field. And that comes, that encompasses a bunch of different things. So on one level, mm. I think... I would really strongly encourage ecologists to hire a professional team, whether that's myself or Laura or rogue detection or, you know, whoever <laughs> that's a professional first before considering getting your own dog, training your own dog, right. trying to involve, trying to bootstrap it yourself. I get a lot of inquiries. I thought you were just calling us unprofessional. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, yeah. I, like I get a ton of inquiries from people who, you know, especially Shots young fired. or early career <laughs> ecologists who kind of want, who kind of want to be, you know, do it themselves. And I think I would encourage, yes. you know, at least having us involved in the study design maybe doing a pilot study with one of our expert dogs and expert handlers before, you as an ecologist dive into it yourself. And then with that, and Laura, I'm I, I hope I'm not stealing all of the things that people need to know. There's plenty. Um, is recognizing how much time and effort that is going to go into preparing for these things. I know Kiyoka Johnson on another podcast episode talked about a time where she was contacted just a couple weeks before they wanted to deploy on a project. And, you know, that's just not enough oh. time to get a dog up and running. Even if we can imprint a dog on the odor that quickly, that's not enough time. And then similarly, she's also, she also mentioned having people ask, Oh, do you have a dog trained on X? And when she says, no, not yet. They just disappear from her inbox. And, you know, we can, we can do it. It might have to be for next breeding season or next hibernation season, but just because we don't have dozens of dogs sitting around with hundreds of trained scents on them. Um, so patience. Mm -hmm. um, Laura. Yeah. I'll, add to that like kind of the captain obvious like dogs are <laughs> sentient beings and they're not a tool in the sense like you train them and then they're just ready to go you know and like they'll always be perfect and have the consistent results over time and, and under different conditions we obviously help train and teach them how to do their jobs the way we um, want them to be doing with the project goals in mind but um, I, a lot of times at least to date, and Kayla, you can give a thumbs up on this too, with conservation detection dogs, their kind of standards are set really high on how they perform compared to human-only survey methods or other methods that are being used out there. So if a dog doesn't have a successful fieldwork season on a particular project, you know, whatever those benchmark 
um, metrics are, they'll just be discounted like, oh, that didn't work. It's like, well, maybe we just need more training time, you know, and um, different eyeballs on that project to really make sure that the dogs are being um, best utilized. Ken, do you want to jump in on this one at all? Well, interestingly enough, I, I, my bigger problem has more to do with a lot of the biologists and conservationists that I work with. I have to spend a lot of time just explaining behavior and how it can be helpful. I, I tend to get called into a project when someone has worked on a conservation idea or concern for 15 or 20 years, and it's like, all right, we'll talk to this behavior guy and maybe he'll be able to help us. And, and, and I think there's this, <laughs> this belief, this lack of understanding of what, what is capable with, with behavioral tools and what you can do in a very, in, in a very good way. And so I think, I think I often feel like we are discounted as not really having a lot to contribute. I always feel like I have to work extra hard uh, to help them recognize what we might be able to do and what we, how we might be able to help them. So, Yeah, it seems like there's almost two types of biologists that I run into at times where there's the people who maybe they've listened to the podcast, they've seen us on social media, and they're like, oh my gosh, this is great. I've got a dog. How can I have my dog ready for next season? You know, and they're like way up here on enthusiasm and, you know, maybe not quite there on, on asking enough questions and having enough preparation. And then maybe there's their PhD advisor or someone else elsewhere in, um, in the, the ecosphere, you know, in the community who, yeah, is just, is so skeptical and, or so they've never heard of it or whatever that, you know, just even getting, getting our, in the door is, is the challenge. So there's, it's really interesting how there's kind of two different types and it doesn't seem like I've run into many people who are in the middle yet. So, um, Ursa, Kim or Erim or Ken, do any of you have any questions that you want to answer? Erim, go ahead or ask, I suppose. Yeah, this is Erim. I wanted to ask, where do you see, uh, this profession going? How do you see using conservation dog detection dogs in the future? Uh, I've seen, we read about it. Your listeners know things that have been done, but I'm curious what's, what's, how are we going to start using it moving forward? Cause this is a growing field. I don't even know. Honestly, that's part of the excitement for me. Like, I'm so curious, like, where is this going to go? <laughs> um, I think there's going to be a lot more use in agriculture based industries. I think there's a ton of potential there. Um, yeah. Disease, you know, you know things like that. Mm -hmm. Biological disease. Go ahead, Ken. No, I was just going to say, I just think if if we were able to provide to the public and to the conservation community a list of all the things that conservation dogs have already done, I think a lot of that would open up ideas for people because... Mm -hmm. Oftentimes, people had no idea that that had been done or that that kind of detection had been done. You know, that, like this is the first time I'd, I'd heard about the bees that Laura brought up. You know, I, I'd certainly been aware of zebra mussels because I lived in an area where those were a real concern. So that wasn't new to me. But even those of us who are in the field often are not aware of the things that are going on in different corners of the community. And I think if we just made that more well known, 
it would open up lots of ideas and places where it could be useful. And I, I agree with Laura, though. I'm, I'm always excited because the number of ways that I find of using my behavioral knowledge in conservation projects just keeps expanding. And it's expanded beyond dogs for me, but it's still... Um, I'm always surprised I, if I were to predict what the next project's going to be, there's no way of knowing, but when it comes up, it's always like, wow, wow. I didn't even think of that one. That was amazing to mm -hmm. me. It's, it's sort of having that behavior person at the table when you're having a discussion where, where, where sometimes that can be a really relevant aspect that can be helpful in some of these projects. Yeah. I, had, I was going to go mention ahead, real quick that um, I was, I was, in this field for 30, assuming not 30, uh, 21 years uh, before I heard of conservation detection dogs, right? And that's what the master's, bachelor's, PhD, and teaching at three universities. So um, it, it's still being, you know, still barely hearing about it. Yeah. Yeah. I had two things come to mind, Irim, and I would actually be interested to flip this question back to particularly you and Charles about ways that you could see um, this progressing from your side of things, because I think, you know, people like Laura and I in particular, we, we're kind of shown up with the dogs, we're here to try to solve the problem, but you're the ones who are looking at the questions. And um, so two things came up for me. One, um, I think I'm much more interested in these really exciting cases where it's not necessarily that what the dogs f are finding is that exciting, although certainly that is really exciting with things like pathogens or ultra cryptic species, but when the application is really interesting. So I was just talking to someone and um, the problem that they were running into is there's a species of antelope that they're able to get them to breed in captivity, but during the lactation phase with the newborn babies, they keep kind of in the shelter world, we would call this failure to thrive and they die. So what they were hoping for, and you know, this is one of those projects that who knows if it'll ever happen, is could we train dogs to find the scat of lactating wild females and then compare the diet and see if we can adjust the diet of the zoo animals to try to save these babies? You know, and it's like, sure, we can train them to find antelope scat. That's that you know, I mean, in our line of work, that's not all that interesting, uh, or like a, a new application or a, like a new target that would be fascinating. But the end result of that is so cool. Um, and then the second thing that I thought of is again not so much about the target, but about how this could be structured. And part of this comes around for me. I think so many people in this industry we're doing this part time. We're working other jobs to sustain ourselves the rest of the year we're doing really important work, but it's so, so hard to get a salaried gig in this job. What I would love to see is, you know, like getting, I mean, obviously this is partially selfish, but like, I would love to go, you know, work at Flathead Bio, like Biodiversity Station. And I just get to be the full-time detection dog person. And I get to rotate through to help different scientists that are doing field work at a given station or, you know, station with a university. I think, I don't know if that's possible, but I think that's the sort of thing that I would be really excited to see more of like, oh, we've got a dog person on the team at this location and they can help you as part of this rather than um, us having to constantly travel across country and constantly write new contracts and, you know, never really know where our next paycheck is coming from. I think that would selfishly be really nice. 
You know, it actually makes me think about what needs to happen kind of in the dog behavior industry in general, and and frankly, across all the different scientific disciplines. You know, we've been working really hard on our platform, like with the whole beyond the operant conversations and trying to get different guests to come in from different scientific disciplines to offer their insights to, you know, the world of dog behavior, because we've tended to only look under certain rocks for answers historically, and our whole industry is kind of driven and dictated by a few narrow disciplines and and what those perspectives are offering. And I think, you know, the point of what you're saying, Kayla, is like there's so much potential when we reach outside our comfort zones and we say, what do you know? You know, what can you tell me? What are your needs? What are you working on? And we keep those conversations going in that kind of spirit of wonder and and curiosity that's supposed to be the heart of science anyway, right? Like rather than kind of having an agenda and kind of a, a fixed rigid ideology, which is kind of what plagues the dog industry all too often, at least, um, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think reaching outside and, and having those conversations and even creating formats for it, right? Whether that's like, okay, every month you're going to do a similar, you know, show like this, where you bring in different people from different, you know, uh, parts of this whole conversation and then just see what comes up, you know, see what evolves out of that. Um, because I do feel like sometimes we get slowed in our own progress, whatever we're trying to do, just because like, we're just not reaching over there and asking and bringing that stuff in. I would love to see you have a salary job doing this. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That would be well, nice. And, um, and this is Ursa. Um, Kim, what you're saying kind of uh, ties in with a question that I had just kind of thrown on the list, but got me thinking even further about it. And I was wondering about like the applications of conservation detection dog work in the pet dog world. Cause you know, that's the realm that I primarily operate in. And it even got me thinking about like citizen science, like, you know, We've got backyard birders across the country that record the birds that come to their feeder. Um, I'm a trained storm spotter. So when we have severe weather, I log in and I say like, here's what I'm observing and here's the description. And it makes me think that there's got to be some application for conservation detection work that we can um, involve the pet dog world in both as a way to spread awareness, to educate people to give dogs jobs, which was kind of what first got me thinking about it. Like, I know Kayla, you and I have done a, an episode or two about, you know, what characteristics we would look for in a, in a dog to, to um, give them this type of job. And how does that translate from being a pet to being a working dog? But um, I, I, I can't help but think there are opportunities for just the average person to get their dog involved in this mm-hmm. stuff. And maybe not every dog is going to be like a Barley, you know, rock star conservation detection dog. <laughs> <laughs> there is only one Barley, but um, what do you guys think? Like, are there applications for this for people who just have pets and they want to get their dogs involved and do like backyard citizen science? I think yes, like absolutely emphatically. Yes. With a couple caveats, um, sure. I think like it depends a little bit on your target. Um, I would be really concerned about people trying to train their pet dogs um, without a lot of oversight to go out and do desert tortoise counts where they're finding live tortoises. Something like that I would be much more concerned about. Um, maybe working with the ultra cryptic species would also be something that you, you're always going to want to bring a pro in for a lot of these gigs. But I do know, so I've got someone over on Patreon who, um, <laughs> and this is, I love this patron to death. Um, she has a 10 or 12 year old Havanese. Um, he was her first dog. She got him in high school. Um, he's a 
you know, got all, uh, you know, the, the list of behavior concerns a mile long. He's not what you would think of as a working dog. Um, but they are working on training him to just go out and help find seedlings of an invasive plant when they're already doing human searches. And it's the sort of thing where, you know, she already had been volunteering with this group. They were already removing these invasive plants. And all she had to ask was like, hey, if I trained my dog to find this, can he come? And they're not relying Mm -hmm. on it. They're not losing anything by not by, you know, if, you know, he's 12, he's not going to cover miles and miles and miles. Um, And I think those are the sort of applications that can especially with, you know, the right dog selection and the right dog project fit would be really good for our community as a whole going forward. Um, Again, with plenty of caveats, but I think you're all catching my drift there. Mm-hmm. I second that. Though. I think that's, that's exactly the application that came to mind for me was where we have citizen science projects already existing, having uh, dog citizen scientists uh, involved you know, especially for detection and especially for invasive taxa, because if a dog, you know, eats an invasive plant, like mm, as long as it's not bad for the dog, it's not really a huge concern. Um, whereas obviously, yeah, things, things of conservation concerns, it's, it's a lot more risky. Um, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. Personally. Yeah. It seems much lower risk as long as, again, you're, you're not like the two big concerns I would have with something like that would be making sure that we're not transporting seeds, which is already going to be a concern when we're working with invasives and then making sure that the dog and handler are well-trained enough with enough professionalism that they're not going to undermine those of us who do it full time. And I don't think fear of that should, should get those of us who are professionals to automatically poo poo it. Um, this is Laura. Thank you, Ursa, for the prompt, because you reminded me I forgot to say my name before. <laughs> um, I think there's a great opportunity as well to partner with uh, local or state agencies that are already doing land restoration efforts on a, you know, like on public lands. So you can put up signage that, you know, is saying like, obviously, we're doing habitat restoration or protection in these areas, but then add the dog aspect into it. Like, did you know that dogs can actually help, you know, like just initiate that conversation and some passive messaging that people who are maybe taking their dogs out for just a, you know, just a hike in the woods, which is not just a hike, but um, I think that's a really great way to start just immersing people in the possibilities of this world. And I'll also, I don't have children myself, but I think kids are a fantastic vector to spread this type of news. So um, getting children involved with like brainstorming new ways the dogs can be used, but also um, getting them out into those areas with a, you know, doggy demo for finding an invasive plant day and so on and so forth. Cause those kids like to talk. <laughs> and they have so much energy. I think there's a great opportunity to harness that. My, yeah. uh, I have a seven-year-old son, and he and Barley have entertained each other for hours. When Kayla's here, we always joke. Bar- uh, Kayla will tell me that my seven-year-old needs a border collie, and I tell her that her border collie needs a seven-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 They're very cute together. Fox has Barley. Um, <laughs> Barley and Fox have trained each other very, very well. Um, yeah. All right. Any other, what's a, what's our next question? Who wants to ask the next question, whether it's on the dock or just, just blurt it out. I have one. Um, so this one's for, I'd be curious what everybody has to say, actually. Um, so from your current knowledge of the working dog world, so not just even conservation detection dogs, but the working dog world, where do you see the biggest opportunities to provide these incredible creatures with a healthier 
life, body, mind, and all that good stuff. Well, I, I, this is Ken. I, you, you, you prompt me to want to get up on a soapbox, and I, I'm going to back off for a second. <laughs> but I, I, I think that so often I work a lot in the working dog field with law enforcement, with search and rescue, with guide dogs. And I really fight a lot against the idea that, that this is just a job and this is just a tool for the job, but really focusing on the welfare issue. And I know this has been brought up before, but to me, to have a really successful working dog, it really is about putting their needs first. Because when their needs are first, when they are healthy first, when their welfare is taken into account, then they're happy and they're eager to participate. Using a dog's nose is one of the easiest things in the world to do if you know how to harness it. But I I feel so often there's this idea that this is the job that has to be done. And I have really found that when we come into some of these organizations and I say, no, don't put the job as your number one priority the welfare of that animal is the number one priority and the job is important, but put it lower down and they fight me on it. But when they do it, they actually find that the dogs are more successful and do the job better mm-hmm. because the pressure to succeed is taken off of them. And I think that uh, that's one of the things that I really am adamant about. I love, I love working with dogs. I love using dogs, but it is critical that we not think of them as just a tool for the job, but we realize that their welfare has to be a top priority. And when we put their welfare first and when we put their health first, you're going to have a better working dog. And so it, it doesn't hurt you to do that. It's actually, I always come into the, some of these organizations by saying, this is a good business proposition, even though what I'm trying to do is make it a welfare proposition. But oftentimes when someone's looking at the bottom line and making sure that they they produce the, the, the right number of dogs to get out there and work, they, they forget that welfare component. And I'm finding ways that if we can show them that putting welfare first and putting the health first actually ends up helping you have better working dogs, that's, that's a win-win for everybody. So I, that's a big issue for me because so often in the dog working world, it just becomes a job and a tool for the job. And, 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 and they forget that part. And I think Kim talked about this earlier already, uh, that, that putting the, putting that, that the animal's welfare first. So. And Kim, Kim would love to jump in again, Ken, cause you re-inspired me to get up on my own soapbox uh, related to that and just kind of expand on what I was saying earlier. But I think the same issues for working dogs are also the same issues for pet dogs. And one of the things I'm working really hard to do in the, in the dog world is to communicate to the public that dogs are animals. And so therefore all of the things that those in the relevant disciplines, you know, we're looking at, you know, ecology or um, conservation or uh, evolutionary biology, all of the things that would be relevant and pertinent for those species are still relevant and pertinent for domesticated and captive species. So, you know, if we're talking about taking a wild animal out of their natural habitat and putting them into captivity, then we immediately have to look at what the affordances of that environment are and whether or not that's going to provide for them opportunities to perceive the signals in the environment in a way that makes sense and then be able to operate and strategically in that environment in a way that is um, logical and functional for them given what 
that particular species is. It's like we've taken all those concepts when it comes to dogs and we've just thrown them out. So when we don't meet their affordances, they have compromised welfare. But we have this idea like pet dogs that are living in a high rise in Manhattan with the best food and bed and, you know, medical care and whatever. There's no way they could be having a welfare issue, but they are in the same way that animals in captivity in the wrong habitat are having massive welfare issues. And so all the more, Ken, as you say, when we're asking them to work now, I will say, interesting enough, a lot of the things we're having dogs do in working context are creating affordances for them they wouldn't have in a pet home. So it's not like most of these dogs are going to perceive that as a burden. Most of them are going to perceive it as a wonderful opportunity to take those instincts and then, you know, direct them in a wonderful application. But then the rest of their reality, we also need to be able to meet that with provisions and autonomy and all of the things that natural species would have the opportunity to enjoy. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. And this is Ken again. And I, just to piggyback on that, I think the idea that, yes, I agree that the, you know, most working dogs get an opportunity to use their nose and get out in the field in ways that a lot of pet dogs don't. But unfortunately, in much of the working world, often the ways that they get that behavior and the ways that they train mm-hmm. that behavior mm-hmm. isn't always done in the kindest, most welfare-oriented way. And so that's mm-hmm. one of the concerns of mine. But I also echo your thoughts. Mm-hmm. It's not just the working world. I, you know, I see pet dog owners who are so determined to win that agility competition or so determined to win that Absolutely. obedience competition that they put too much pressure on the dog. And it, what was supposed mm-hmm. to be a fun activity ended up being a really hard working event. I I just didn't go there because we were talking about working dogs, but I agree with you. Um, Ken, to uh, echo something that you said earlier, and this is, you know, it's, it's a little bit of like when you're a hammer, everything's a nail, but coming from working in a veterinary behaviorist practice, one of the big focuses that we have is identifying underlying causes of um, inappropriate behavior in terms of is the dog sick or painful. And, I, there are so many times I can think of where um, there wasn't a specific presenting behavior that indicated the dog was painful, like, oh, it's limping, or there's a visible sore or whatever. But the the topography of the behavior was such that it was like, okay, this seems like it's coming from a place of pain. And it's so hard to convince people sometimes that like, your dog is probably painful. We need to get this checked out. Oh no, he's fine. He jumps on the bed every night. He ju- I actually had a, a client say that recently. There's no way my dog has bad knees. She jumps on my desk to look out the window. Um, and I think especially with working dogs who are you know running miles a day or climbing or out in the world and being super athletic, it can be really easy to overlook those uh, physical causes of aberrant behavior, or even if they're, if they're not even causing any behavior changes, just making sure that we're keeping them sound and healthy and checking in on that regularly, even if we don't have a reason to, I think is really important. Um, but that just kind of made me, me think of that when you, when you mentioned that. And I laughed Kim, because you said, you know, you mentioned the dog living in the high rise in Manhattan, half of our practice is in New York city. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I hear so many stories from that side of the team about dogs that are living literally in the lap of luxury, but have really poor welfare for, you know, a variety mm-hmm. of different reasons. So, um, and if I can add one other thing to answer this question, uh, something that I see as a really um, big opportunity to improve the welfare of dogs, both working dogs and uh, pet dogs is um, the idea that dogs deserve a choice. And Ken, I can remember hearing you talk about this. I mean, 
it had to have been, I've been in the field 21 years. It's, it was a long time ago hearing the first time I heard you talk about giving dogs the opportunity to say no. And it, it, it was a revolutionary, I think it still is revolutionary, but now it's very accepted in, in our circles, you know, the people that we um, surround ourselves with. But I think making that idea more widely acceptable, that dogs get a choice and many choices. It shouldn't just be, you can do this and you get a good thing or you do this and you get a bad thing, but it should be a variety of choices that, in, that all enrich their welfare. And I think that has such a huge opportunity to improve the lives of not just dogs, but the people that are working with them or living with them. Um, and if I had to pick one thing, I would say the concept of, of animals getting a choice is just so, so, so important. Yeah, I know we've talked probably in the past on the show, but you know, I would hope that if if my job changed or my do- I never go out into the field again, you know, my dogs would be bummed. They do ask me to work, I think, more than I ask them to work a lot of days. Um, but, you know, it's such an essential tenant for me that their quality of life shouldn't change whether or not we go in the field. You know, we should still be providing them with the same level of care and the same, like they're getting enough exercise and enrichment that just because they're not going to work that day doesn't mean that they're bored and understimulated. Cause I think that is, or was hopefully relatively common in the working dog world. I'm seeing less and less of it, but I'm also pretty entrenched in the conservation dog world, which I think might be a little bit more progressive than your typical working dog world when we're thinking of police or bomb or drug dogs. And then the other thing that I think, you know, and we've talked about this as well on the past, on the show in the past is that, you know, drive and enthusiasm from the dog isn't enough as an indicator of welfare and training um, being sufficient. Um, so just because my dog likes it doesn't mean that that means it's good. Um, mm-hmm. And just because he's excited to hop out of the truck and go to work doesn't mean that it's necessarily the best thing for him on that given day or in those conditions or that I've done a good job training even. Mm. Um, so I had a question for Erim and Charles. I feel like we've been very dog centric today. So we wanted, I wanted to circle back to the two of you. I, I said this question and then we didn't have space to answer it. What do the two of you see as far as from the conservation or ecology side? Like what are some of the big questions that you're grappling with or that you see on the horizon? And, you know, maybe how can dogs be involved in that? But especially, you know, what are, what are the things you're seeing right now? Yeah, so this is Adeem, and so I work with uh, smaller critters that are often hard to detect. Um, one of the big problems that we have with amphibians in the Cascade regions, western United States, is that they're subterranean, um, and any act of trying to quantify them or figure out if they're even there um, destroys their habitat. So I would mm. be really curious to see, you know, find out, um, you know, see if we could use this technique to figure, determine whether we could have, uh, have dogs determine if we have multiple species in one area, where that is, you know, are we finding just one species or multiple species? I don't know if this is something you'd have trained multiple dogs for at the time, but, um, and someone might say, well, that only gives us occupancy, whether that species is there. And that's actually how most of most of the data and statistical analysis we collect, um, that's the data that we use when doing amphibian modeling or trying to do amphibian research, not quantifying how many are there, really just quantifying that they're there. 
Um, and so for a species that's really hard to detect, and if you really even touch it, in order to touch it, you're destroying its habitat, obviously you don't want to do anything, but then it leads to a problem where we don't know the conservation status of many species in the Western United States. Um, another, you know, cryptic species that, that I uh, worked with back when I uh, did some work with the Bureau of Land Management was the flat-tailed horn lizard. You can, as a person, you can walk right over it and it might not even move. Um, and so, and so I would, I suspect even, um, they're so cryptic, they usually don't move. That's their strategy. Their defense strategy is just to blend in. Um, and so being able to use detection dogs to, um, uh, observe these and, and find occupancy of these really good. I spent eight weeks looking for them and I found three. This is a full-time job. Uh, I found more of their, I found more of their scat, but I couldn't, I couldn't determine the difference between their scat. And and the Colorado fringe bill lizard that have nearly identical scat. I bet your dogs could figure out the difference with training. <laughs> we hope so. <laughs> yeah, this is Charles. I I think that that those are are absolutely the the key points there. I think I think Eddie really really hit the nail on the head. I would say you know coming from a ten thousand foot view where I've been operating for the last few years. I hear these questions a lot, you know, people are always like, oh, what's the newest, coolest, exciting thing in conservation? And I'm kind of like, uh, who cares? That's not what conservation is about. You know, I, like it's, this is going to sound very like down in the jumps, but like really conservation is just like right now, the whole field is about like, can we get this stuff done? Can we do it? Can we collect the data? It doesn't have to be fancy. It doesn't have to be new. Dogs can find stuff that we can't find. And knowing where these species are, it just like, I think it's less about innovation and more about implementation now. We yeah. just need this to be happening. We need the funding out there. We need this stuff to be happening all over the world all the time in tons of different ecosystems and different systems. Um, I don't think we need any more fancy new innovation. It's great if those happen, but like realistically, we just need this stuff. We just need this to be happening at 9,000 times the scale it's been happening. We need so many more people doing this type of work. Um, this whole idea of presence data, right? That, that is that is the bread and butter of real ecology, of understanding the spatial distribution of species, the temporal distribution of species, which which we use to make all large conservation decisions. Um, the you know the the yin to that yang is absence data, uh, which dogs are also excellent at. They are so much better. They're so much more sensitive at detecting than we are. They can also tell us very importantly, just as importantly, whether or not something or, or whether something is not in a place with greater confidence than we could have uh, had with our own eyes, with, with how, you know, how little we can trust our own detection abilities. And those absences allow us to conduct much more robust statistical modeling of what we call this, the, these distributions. Um, give us much better accuracy, much better confidence of what's going on. So really, um, you know, obviously we're, there are all these cool new applications, cool new study systems all the time. I think the disease ecology work is really cool. The invasion ecology work is really cool. Uh, all that's fascinating. But realistically, I think just what I would want to see in the future has nothing to do with with new ways of doing this. It has to do with making this mainstream, making this upscaled, us as a society making changes that provide the funding and the logistical support to have conservation science occurring on these on these scales. Uh, and obviously, you know, with uh, technologies like dogs, I'm using air quotes, of course, dogs themselves are just 
their own entities, but they're, they're considered from the perspective of conservation scientists, right? They're, they're always looped in with like all the, the newest cool stuff. But that's what I want to see is I, I just, I want to see more of it. Mm-hmm. I want to see it happening at scale um, to guide policy decisions. Cause I think we have this image that we've got it figured out and that, Oh, you know, IUCN, they, they said what's endangered and what's not. And it's like, some some absolutely shocking proportion of species i could see aaron aaron gesturing helplessly here yeah i mean it's really we don't know like honestly mm-hmm. for for the vast majority of species on this planet we have no idea what condition they're in mm-hmm. we don't even know and we know it's probably really bad uh, uh, but we cannot even say when it. i was researching the fulbright grant i wrote i think five of the six species i was looking at the population numbers were unknown but declining which is like oh, that's real bad like we know it's getting worse yeah, but we, we don't know where it's at right now and these are big cats like this mm-hmm. is charismatic megafauna mm-hmm. you know if we don't know how many mm-hmm. jaguars there are how many ocelots there are like i like Arim, i don't know how you do it there's a reason that i name my lab the charismatic mini fauna lab it's a little bit of a joke because not everyone thinks it's small organisms from butterflies to crayfish to amphibians to nondescript birds are charismatic but that's the point is that we don't know right uh and charles is absolutely correct um this basic ecological information of where are they distributed in time and space. Uh, we don't know that for the vet, a ton of species. <laughs> Can I just ask a really quick dumb sure. question? Um, because I'm not in that world. Um, are there still the thoughts that there are kind of strong indicator species, which might be more, I don't know, have more gravitas when it comes to policy? Like if you might focus with conservation dogs on a particular type of indicator species that might have implications for the health of that ecosystem? I think we've shifted a little bit more from indicator species to something maybe a little bit more nuanced, of course, because that's what science does, but to species that have important ecological function. Um, so they uh-huh. serve an ecosystem service is is more often what we key into. So, you know, you remove this organism from the ecosystem and then other it starts affecting the whole landscape, the whole organism. Um, like coral or something like, like that. Coral, kelp, um, you know, yeah. sea otters, something that something along those lines. Um, as much as I'd love to say that one amphibian species, right, is might be. It might be an integrated species, but it, it might not be important for ecosystem function. As much as I hate to say that, mm-hmm. right? There might be mm-hmm. something else in there. So there is that movement. I will say, you know, when we just focus on ecosystem function, we might be not concerned about biodiversity uh, as a whole, right? Right. There be some right. species mm-hmm. that might be able to fill in that niche. Yeah, and it's all connected, right? So, like, you're not going to, you know, get away from that. But It seems to me like whenever I speak to biologists who have a particular study species, every single one of them thinks that their species is a key species or an indicator (laughs) keystone species or an indicator species. Charles, you probably talk to a lot more ecologists than me, but it seems to me like every time (laughs) I'm hearing someone talk about this, you know, it seems like the more we know about any individual species – the more we understand about how it interacts with the rest of the ecosystem, the more it's like, well, even this one, like, as Arim said, like something else might be able to fill that niche, but then we're losing out on richness. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Charles, you can, mm-hmm. you can counter me. And then I was going to give, a, we're going to do one last question and then let everyone go. Cause I know we do have to, we have to skedaddle. Uh, I mean, I, I, I largely agree with what I'm hearing. I suppose. I think, I think it makes a good point that we have, I think uh, the field of ecology and conservation has certainly 
Um, I think we're a little bit, I don't know if we're past indicator species entirely, but we certainly now have many different kinds of species that we like to quote unquote use for different purposes. So people will talk about umbrella species, which are ones that need large amounts of different types of habitat, perhaps in large areas that if you protect them with policy, you are in effect protecting everything else. And then there's more like keystone species, like there's function ones that Anima was talking about. There are flagship species, which are politically powerful because in some way they, they have an influence and people care about them um, on and on and on and on. So there are lots of different ways that species, individual species can be very valuable this way. Indicators now are usually in the form of indices. So working in the freshwater world, like I do right now, people will take uh, a look at all the different species in a certain area and they will construct a, a, a basically a calculated metric based on the traits of those different species that then tells you something. So you can go to one stream, maybe you see a bunch of leeches and a bunch of weird like flies whose maggots grow out of mud and you think, okay, mm, water quality sucks here. And you go someplace else and you get a whole diversity of uh, uh, I remember the English name for some of these things now, like caddisflies and mayflies, um, and these these really these species that need extremely uh, clean water. Okay, well now we can probably say the water quality is really good. So they're indicating something with kind of their ratios and their mm. diversity and things like that. So it's become a little schmancier, but I think the principles are are largely the same. Um, I'm not. I'm. I'm I don't want to get the reputation of like being the downer guy here, but I mean there are, there are plenty of species on the planet that are like ecologically useless. Um, and for me, that doesn't yeah. mean that they're not worth saving. That that's because I am assigning intrinsic value to them. I think that there's something sacred and wonderful about those organisms and the fact that they exist. And I will fight tooth and nail to keep them around. But I'm not going to be able to make an ecological, uh, ecologically, intellectually defensible, defensive, defensible sort of stand necessarily explaining why they, you know, they they need to be there. We can make we can you know bend ourselves over backwards trying to say oh well it's maintaining option value and genetic diversity whatever and the, and there's there's plenty of of validity to those arguments but at the same time eventually we do have to just say listen I want these things around mm-hmm. I just I just want this species to stay here because I value it and that's that you know um, and I yeah sometimes I I get a little. Uh, weary of just how far we go into just like oh well maybe we could put a dollar sign on it. it's like well do we have to can we yeah. just say it's nice <laughs> yeah so one of the yeah, things this is kim again but one of the things that just to kind of bring full circle with my of course kind of centricity of focusing on dogs but giving a hoot about everything you just said for the sake of our planet and every single species on it i wonder whether sometimes there's an untapped opportunity in the dogs that are in people's homes for people to actually connect mm with the meaning of all of those life forms. Cause I think like our world is so kind of sterile and indoors and modernized and like our whole reality is so disparate from our evolutionary and ecological roots as a species. And so like, I don't think we don't feel it. We don't, we don't feel that connection, but yet we Mm -hmm. have these organisms sitting in our living rooms that are born of those same molds. And, you know, I think actually tapping into um, appreciating them for who they are with that welfare centricity, instead of modify its behavior to what I want, like my cell phone centricity, (laughs) I feel like creating that value shift in humanity about their dogs for me, is an ideological potential uh, way to get people to care, yeah, you know, because I agree, point. if we just put monetary value on the species, I, I think that's just a losing cyclical battle of demeaning mm-hmm. them into, you know, a, a number. We keep on, lo- we'll keep on losing more and more and more species if we, if we do that. Yeah. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I know we've got a couple of people who need to run. I have one last question. Um, and Ken, we'll let you go first and then you can sign off and we'll let everyone else wrap up. Um, so this question is, I'm going to let you pick one between these two questions. Either what advice would you give to yourself 10 years ago? Or where do you hope to see kind of your career or this field in 10 years? So you can either look forward or back. Ken, you get to go first. I'll, yeah, I'll go backward and I'll say, you know, if I would give advice to myself, I would just encourage myself to be patient and not to expect results too fast. Uh, many of the conservation projects that I've worked on, we've worked on them for 14 years or 12 years, and it took time to be able to see the difference happen. And people without patience or people who give up too quickly uh, aren't going to see results necessarily. And so for me, that would be my 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 part my, my parting words for today great thank you ken thanks ken, thanks, ken. take care <laughs> all right Irim, do you want to go next yeah so this is i teach a class called careers in wildlife biology i say it's my favorite class but then i say that about my applied wildlife management class as well or other classes i've taught they're all my favorite classes it's like choosing which is your favorite dog right um and uh, the piece of advice I'd like to give people, because we're, we're all probably in slightly different lines of work, people are listening at different stages in their career, is, you know, kind of mention on, follow up on Ken's, you know, be patient on, with yourself um, and take care of yourself. Uh, whatever, you know, there's, make sure that uh, whatever your goals are in your career, um, uh, that they're not, that, you know, your career isn't your life right that you have that you be cultivating your personal friendship relationships the things that make you happy right and and also uh that your your passions don't have to be your career uh, my brother who's a mycologist hobby mycologist knows more about mycology than i do about amphibians and he's a hobby mycologist on the weekends and so he brings his passion with him um, as a transportation planner so regardless of what, you know, where you're thinking of career wise or where you are in your stuff, you know, you can, there's way, multiple ways to follow your passion um, and not just through necessarily a career. Yeah. I, I love how this is almost coming around to like anti-capitalism at the end here. <laughs> like, oh, it's not all about money. Um, all right, Laura, do you want to go next? Laura here. Um <laughs> I am going to, I said this on your podcast last time you and I talked, Kayla, I'm going to go with my be more dog mentality in life, like really honor and appreciate like the moment that you're in, in whatever, you know, whether it's your career or professional, personal relationships you have, um, and, you know, stay curious and humble. Like there's so many amazing people in the world that are truly just curious and want to engage in conversation about whatever you're doing and vice versa. So I've been really bad in my early career about asking others for help. <laughs> so I've gotten much better at doing that and you, just having open conversations. Um, you don't have to be everything to everybody and that's okay. Yeah. Yeah, actually, um, the advice that I would give myself kind of goes in line with um, what Laura just said. And uh, it's something that I think I first heard Kathy Sedeo say. Um, Kathy Sedeo is a, a, for the, for the conservation side of our 
team and audience, um, a pre- pretty well-known, well-respected um, trainer and behavior specialist in the, in the dog field. And she said, help the people who want your help. And what that means is that spend your time with the people who want to engage with you, who want to collaborate with you, who you can enroll. Um, and don't worry about the people that you can't get to. Right. And I think that especially as a trainer who came up in the positive reinforcement world. So my mentor was, you know, like I said, 21 years ago was a crossover trainer and I went to my first clicker expo within a few years of starting. And so it was this huge wave of, of this positive reinforcement movement. And it was like, we've got to get everybody on board. Right. And I think that a lot of positive reinforcement based trainers have been criticized for being really militant and, picking fights and arguing with people and taking it as our personal responsibility to change everyone's mind. And I understand that passion and that fire. Like I still feel that, but now I give it to the people who want to hear it instead of feeling like it's my personal mission to go out and argue with the people who don't want to hear it. Um, And I think that like choosing where you spend your time and energy and, and using it where it can do the most good is so important. And it's something that I so badly needed to hear as a young trainer. And I think a lot of young trainers that I see now need to hear it, that like you can still be just as passionate and just as effective. And, and you're not any less of a trainer if you don't, uh, you know, if you're not out there fighting every day, (laughs) you can, you can fight by just going out and doing it right. And helping the people who want your help. So that's something that I carry with me often. Um, and it's easy, much easier for me now to do that because we, as you, I think, as we all know, as you get older, you have limited time and energy. And so you just sort of naturally choose to spend it where it's the most reinforcing and that's with the people who want it. Um, but yeah, I, I, that really stuck with me. And I think if I could go back and give my younger my younger self advice, it would be that one. Not that I would listen. I mean, (laughs) yeah. Yeah, Well, and I think especially for, you know, I I assume most, if not, yeah, most of our audience is probably either in the animal behavior dog training world or the conservation ecology sort of Mm -hmm. world. Both of these have really high levels of burnout. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I love that so much of this advice is revolving around, like, hey, we want you here for the whole time. Like, we want you to be able to figure out how to stay in whatever field you choose. Um, so. Um, so I'm going to answer both questions. Like, what I would say to myself, my old me, and then what my hope would be for the future is the same answer, um, which is to know and remember and to continue to remind ourselves, because I think we all need to hear it every day, um, that you know, ideology is the enemy of science, of critical thought, of getting things done, you know, and and meaning that this us versus them mentality, even if we're so sure we're in the right, right? Like you're killing the species and I'm trying to protect the species, or you know, in the world dog world when it comes to methods, like yeah. I'm teaching them humanely and you're using a shot collar or whatever, like the judgments, you know, it, it hell politics these days, right? You know, it's like everything breaks down as soon as we've made an enemy out of someone else. And so kind of like Ursa, you were talking about trying to understand the human side of the equation when we're working with families and realizing like they have their limitations and their needs too. the farmers that are trying to protect their livestock from the wolves that are coming in to predate against them, right? They have their needs. And so sometimes that other perspective 
has so much to teach us. And so getting outside of our comfort zone within our disciplines, whatever those might be, mm-hmm. asking who we think of as the other kind of reflexively for their opinion and feedback and insight. Like, you know, I, I hope that as, um, as a field and then, you know, as a culture and as a planet, we can grow up a little bit and, and we can have more mature dialogue and discourse without alienating different perspectives. And frankly, I think we are all a little in trouble if we don't, you know? Um, so, but the old me sure didn't know that at all. Um, and I'm learning it in my adult life now more and more every day. Um, but it's a temptation for any one of us, you know, to default to that ego. So I, I think trying to check it at the door is our best endeavor. This is Charles. Uh, man, I, this is the hardest question I think that's come up today. I don't know. As soon as it was like, oh, talk to your former self. Like, gosh, what did I say? But I, I, I think I, I like the idea of sort of riffing on um, uh, what Kim was saying there. That this idea of, of the other, especially thinking of the other in terms of non-human life on this planet. I really like that point that was made earlier about, you know, maybe dogs as non-human lives that are about as close to human as we're going to interact with in terms of non-humans um, as a bridge that helps people relate to nature and understand that nature is more than just this stuff that we keep around if we care to and the rest <laughs> of the time we get rid of it. Um, this goes for both what I kind of aspire to in the future and what I probably would have wanted to start 10 years ago <laughs> that I'm getting into now is you know, in the last couple of years, I have been moving beyond just my scientific career to go more into to being an interpretive naturalist, uh, which for me doesn't just mean, yeah, I'm going to help some people learn how to identify trees. It means, no, I'm going to help people connect to nature on whatever way can be more profound than their current connections. If they have nothing, well, maybe let them understand what a lichen is. Just know what that word means. See one, uh, you know, on the sidewalk or on a gravestone and know what it is. Um, I think if if what I can do in the next 10 years is to um, provide some some enrichment to that, to any number of people to help them be a little bit more interested in nature, a little bit more recognizing of like, oh, wow, yeah, that's life. That Those are other forms of life to which I feel some ethical compulsion and some recognition that this thing has value for reasons other than money, 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 that alone, I think would be huge for me. And that's something that I wish I had taken more seriously in the past. I think maybe I I didn't realize uh, (laughs) how, how bad it was uh, in terms of the population of this planet and how we relate to, or completely don't relate to nature. Um, So that's, that's definitely a big part of what I would like to do more. You know, I think that, that science uh, especially, you know, as a lot of conservation scientists do it is, is extremely valuable, extremely effective, but it's not going to work alone. Um, and I'm hoping to, you know, start applying some of my other skills that go outside of science more to reaching much broader audiences, you know, publishing lots of papers in big journals is, is fun. And, and sometimes governments will listen to you about it, but we kind of also need to be just getting to everybody here. This is not an ivory tower issue. This is, um, we need to make fundamental change in the way that people broadly, you know, people writ large are thinking about nature and non-human systems. So, Yeah, I've got, I've got two. I'll answer my own question as well. Um, <laughs> and of course I've got two. I'm, I'm impossible to, <laughs> there's a reason I host a podcast. I'm really good at talking. Um, 
And I think the advice I would give my past self would be to try to be a little bit more flexible and with that opening the door to more creativity. I was an extremely driven and focused kid. And I remember like, especially the year after I graduated college, which is not me 10 years ago, but you know, past me, I, I had, I struggled a lot with my mental health. I was in a really bad place. And I think in retrospect, more of that, that I gave than I understood or that um, I gave credit for was kind of coming from this, this, crisis of like, oh my gosh, I always thought I was going to go and I was going to get a PhD and I was going to be a tropical biologist. And I'm not in grad school. Like, what am I doing? And I think, again, if I had consciously started opening myself up to more flexibility and then creativity, that um, the way that I have been able to in the last couple of years, I think I would have been a much happier person for um, longer. Um, You know, like this podcast is an example of this. Like I was fired, I was totally lost. And it was like, uh, okay, yeah, we'll do a podcast. And then I get to talk to all these really smart people and ask them all the questions and I get to pretend to be an expert. (laughs) And this is great. Um, And then the advice or, you know, one of the things that I would like to, to see other people or, you know, other people doing so, and this isn't actually the question, but it was the thing that came up as a thing I would give to a room advice I would give to a room full of people who were my age 10 years ago, but not myself specifically was it would be to like, to go for it, like give it a try, whatever it is that's on your mind. I think, um, you know, that's something that at 17, I think I was really hubristic and probably didn't need more of that. But I think a lot of young early career scientists or trainers, probably need a little bit more of that. And I think like the confidence to just try it um, is something I would love to see more people being able to go for. So this went better than expected. I (laughs) am so grateful to all of you for um, being willing to experiment with this, um, with me on this. And um, I'm really excited to hear responses. I have already come up with, you know, 25 people that I would have loved to have on this panel if we could have fit them and maybe we'll have to do more of these. Um, so again, as, as we close out, why don't we let everyone, we'll go around the room. You can say your name and um, a place that someone can find you online. And obviously we will have those links in the show notes because no one is going to remember them or write them down. And we will do the same for Ken. Um, so Edim, we'll go, we'll, we'll keep going in the same order. So it's Edim Gomez here. You can find me on Twitter at Edim Gomez, um, at E-R-I-M, Gomez, G-O-M-E-Z, or on Instagram where I'm really active at Cumbia Conservationist because I love dancing. Am I next? <laughs> right? Yeah. Okay. Sorry. I've been having like a throat thing going on, so I'm muting myself all the time. I keep almost pointing um, so- and then realizing that you won't be able to tell where you are on my screen. <laughs> That'll be the closing. Yeah, it's you. <laughs> Point to your favorite person on the call, but nobody knows who it is. <laughs> um, anywho, I, so you can find me uh, at <laughs> Connecting with Dogs. Or not Connecting with Dogs. That's my other business, you guys. Um, <laughs> Conservation Dogs Collective, which is eerily similar to Connecting with Dogs. Um, so connectingwithdogs.com. We're on social media, but honestly, I'm an OG kind of lady. Like website, check out our website and connect with us through our website. That's where the money's at for me. As far as like being able to really connect with people. 
All right, Ursa. Um, I'm Ursa Acri, and you can find me at behaviorvets.com. Um, we're Behavior Vets, a veterinary behaviorist practice. We operate physically in Denver, Colorado, and New York City, um, but we operate virtually all over the world. And you can find us on Facebook and Instagram as Behavior Vets. Um, but yeah, please reach out. Um, we would love to chat, help people with their dogs, connect people, all the good stuff. So, um, depending on what people were looking for, you can, um, if you have a dog and you're needing help, we have dogdoorbehaviorcenter.com. And there's also some info on there about what we offer for pros in terms of education. Um, if people just want to kind of like, you know, put their toe in the water, um, I have a Ted talk that they can just Google and find. Um, and also I'm pretty active, unfortunately on Facebook just for business reasons. (laughs) Um, so (laughs) they can find me there as well. All right, Charles. I guess, yeah, I guess I'm last. Uh, I can't help anyone with dog training, but if you want to send me pictures of your dog, you're more than welcome to. I love dogs. Uh, I can be found many different places now on the interwebs. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Gulo Thoughts, G-U-L-O. Instagram at Gulo Shots. You can also learn about me and hear more of uh, the great podcasts that I'm, one of the great podcasts that I'm working on, which is Nature Guys at natureguys.org. If you're interested in my science, you can find me at vanreeseconservation.com. And then finally, my newly launched uh, nature interpretation blog, guloinnature.com, is a fantastic place to learn some cool nature stuff. And also, you can get in touch with me very easily through there. Uh, Yeah. Thanks, everybody, for for listening. And also, of course, to the panelists. It's been wonderful to be here with you. Yeah. I hope everyone does send Charles a lot of dog pictures. I mean, I think almost Please. everyone here would probably be happy for your dog pictures, but Charles specifically asked. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, Yeah. And I'm, I'm Kayla Fratt. This is Canine Conservationist. Uh, join our Patreon. Um, this podcast takes up way too much of my time and is not paid. So please do <laughs> join Patreon. You can uh, get all sorts of fun perks there. You can donate if you just want to give me money without me giving you anything back. Um, and always follow us on Instagram and Twitter and TikTok at either Kayla Fratt or Canine Conservationists. All those links you can find at canineconservationist.com. Just, just go there. All right. Thanks for listening. Thank you.